Sensible chat. Budgeting made easy. Really easy. Welcome to Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby, the show that is all about budgeting, smart spending, and saving. On this episode, Sensible Bobby chats with Tony Bradshaw, author of The Millionaire Choice. Tony believes that with the right knowledge, resources, and choices, almost anyone in America can become a millionaire regardless of income, ethnicity, or financial situation. But first, here's Sensible Bobby to share some thoughts and ideas on making budgeting fun. Thanks, Scott. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Sensible Chat. Now, as you may know by now, I am a budgeting geek. I love budgeting. It's actually become quite a hobby for me, but I know that I might be in the minority in that. So I wanted to share some ideas with you about why I find it fun and hopefully give you a new perspective that might help you find some fun in it as well. And I found this great article on wisebread.com. It's called, If Budgeting Isn't Fun, You're Doing It Wrong. So I wanted to talk to you about this article because it gave me actually a couple of new ways of thinking about things too, but it really outlines why I think budgeting is fun. You know, you have those cases where you're just reading something and nodding your head vigorously because it sounds like I wrote the article myself. So I really wanted to share this with you. It was uh, written by Philip Brewer, just to give full credit, and it's available on wisebread.com. The first thing that I thought was interesting in here is that he asked the questions, what do you want? In particular, what do you most want to have and what do you most want to do? And he goes on to say that you've probably had a bunch of ideas pop into your head. So if you've got a minute, go ahead and put them down on a piece of paper and pause the podcast if you need to. Now, spend just a few minutes thinking about a budget. And you probably had a short list of budget categories pop into your head, right? Housing, gas, electricity, groceries, things like that. So what is the overlap between the two lists, the list of things you most want and those classic budgeting categories? Pretty small, right? But really, if you think about it, those classic budgeting categories almost certainly belong on the list of things you really want. For example, a home and food. I mean, none of us want to be homeless or starve, right? But you don't think to put them on the list of things you really want because you're just used to having them. So now here's how you can budget the fun way. Think again about what you really, really want. And this time, don't forget to include the stuff you're used to having, like food and a place to sleep. Make a list and then put it in order of priority with water, food, and shelter at the top. But don't stop there. Go ahead and add to the list all of those other things that you want. The new car, the new computer, the vacation in Fiji, the smartphone rank them in with everything else. This is what budgeting is all about. So is it weird for finding it fun to fantasize about all the cool stuff I want to have and all the cool things I want to do? Does putting this stuff into a big list make it any less fun? Granted, it would be even more fun to actually have and do them. Ahaha. And that's the next step. Right now, you can go ahead and treat yourself to all the items that are at the top of your list. Yes, at first, this may just mean paying your rent and utility bills, but that's not the end. The real reason that budgeting is fun is that it's the best way to get further down your list, to get past the things you need and start getting yourself to the things you actually want. In the article, he actually says there's a reason most people hate budgeting. It's because their finances are out of control. And that makes so much sense. Of course, if your finances are out of control, then making a list like this doesn't feel like a step towards satisfying your wants. It feels like you're putting your nose up against the window of a shop with everything you want, but nothing you can afford, right? So the solution to that is straightforward. Take control of your finances. And he has a really great way of doing this, which is kind of counter to what you think of as traditional budgeting. Take the list of things that you really, really want and put a dollar amount on each one. So all it takes to be in control of your finances is number one, know what you want. Number two, know how much it costs. Number three, buy things in order of the priority you've set up, starting with the most wanted. 
And number four, quit buying stuff before you spend all your money. So once you're managing these things on a regular basis and banking the surplus cash, you can start planning ways to get the items that fall below the cutoff. And the cutoff would be right now, if you only have enough money to pay for your rent, to pay for your groceries, to pay for all those things that you really want and really need to have, once those are met, then you can use the excess to start planning for the things that are farther down your list, the really fun things. Now, you're probably not going to get this list exactly right on the first try. None of us ever do. But you can play with this and move things around on your priority list if you want to. Find a way to cut expenses. It's really up to you. And pretty soon, things are going to start settling down and you'll find a pattern. And that's when budgeting starts to get really fun. The reason for that is that budgeting, if you think about it in its simplest terms, is like goal setting, right? And if you've listened to past episodes of this podcast, you've heard my favorite CPA, Michelle Kagan, say that a goal is a dream with a plan. So if you sit around dreaming about these things, and who doesn't? I mean, we dream about trips that we could take, places we could go, things we could have. This is a way to actually turn them into reality. And that is so exciting to me. And the best way that I've found to do that, to put a goal into place, is to budget. Because then I can see a mathematical timeline, right? I can see that if I need $500 for something that I really, really want, and I can put away $100 a month, then it's going to take me five months to get there. And with a light at the end of the tunnel, it really makes things way more exciting, at least for me. Even when I was at the debt payoff stage, it was exciting for me to pay my credit card bill every month because I could see the balance going down. And it was so exciting to know that in this amount of months, that's going to be gone and I'm going to have this much extra money to do something else with. But see, here's where you get caught up because if you don't have a plan for what comes next, then let's say you're paying $300 towards a credit card bill every month, right? When you get done paying that off, What are you going to do with it? If there's no plan, lifestyle creep comes in and all of a sudden you don't know where that money is going. It's like I used to have this 300 bucks that I was paying towards debt, so I should have more money, but yet I still feel broke. And that's just because it hasn't been planned for. So to me, budgeting is like goal setting and it's like planning for a dream. And I love that. So that's why I'm excited about it. And hopefully that gives you some excitement about it too. If nothing else, just set up a list of things that you want to accomplish or you want to purchase in your life and go gangbusters. I mean, get as wild about your dreams as you want to. And then just prioritize your list and see what's really important to you. Maybe start with a small one at first. You can feel that accomplishment. That's what I did because that gave me the motivation to keep going towards my larger goals. And it's worked quite well so far. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, I've tried to budget and it just didn't work for me. So I have an article here called Four Reasons Why Budgets Don't Work. And it actually covers four different kinds of budgeting methods. So let's go through them and figure out what's going on here. The first one is crash budgeting. And it's basically like crash dieting, right? You cut everything out because you know that these things aren't good for you. But what happens? I know when I've crash dieted, I feel deprived, right? I don't feel sustained. I'm miserable. I'm not in a very good mood. And what ends up happening? I just go ahead and binge, right? So not only does my plan not work out, but then I go over the top to make up for the lost time, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I spent two weeks not eating any sweets. So now I'm going to eat everything sweet that I can possibly find to make up for it. So not only have I not done myself any good, but I've actually done more harm because I end up gaining another pound when I was trying to lose. And it's the same way with crash budgeting. If you cut everything out, out and deprive yourself of everything that makes life fun for you, then yeah, you're going to be miserable and it's not going to work. That's not a good way to do it. And you don't have to do it that way. There are much better ways to budget no matter what your circumstance is. The next two that they talk about in this article, I kind of equate into one and that's static budgeting and monthly budgeting. And basically the gist here is, is that you make a list of all your monthly expenses and you call that your budget. 
But what happens is things that are outside of the norm get lost. I made this mistake so many times before I finally figured it out. And the worst culprit for me for some reason was the oil change. I was budgeting on a monthly basis and the oil change only comes up every three months, right? So it was never in my budget. Now, 60 bucks for an oil change, that doesn't sound like much, but we were on a very tight budget. And the thing was, is that since I'm doing a zero-based budget, every dollar is spoken for. So I've paid off everything for the month. Everything's good. Now we can go out and have some spending money, right? Which would have been fine, except for the fact that I forgot about the oil change. And it tripped me up so many times before I finally got it straight in my head. So what I had to do was just sit down and really think through, like for me, an entire year. Everything that you can think of that comes up over the year or whatever time span you want to deal with, but we're talking about car registration. That comes up once a year. For me, that was another one that tripped me up. I mean, if I didn't have that money budgeted, it was going to be very hard to come up with it in the moment. And once I made the list and knew, because I made the list of things like that, that were either annual expenses or just irregular in whatever way, haircuts, smog checks, Amazon Prime membership, any of those kind of things. I made a list and I put them in order of date throughout the year. So that way I knew full well how long I had to plan for those and how far out I needed to go. Because sometimes there are so many expenses on one month that I wouldn't necessarily be easily able to budget for them all in the same month. But if I knew ahead of time, I could budget for them a month or two ahead of time and be done with it. A lot less stress. And the other thing is monthly budgets versus biweekly budgets or however often you're getting paid. This is another thing that really trips people up because typically we're not paid once a month. Now, there are people who are and a monthly budget works fine for that. As a matter of fact, you should have a monthly budget if you're only getting paid once a month. But you really need a budget for every pay period if you're in the paycheck to paycheck cycle. And the reason is, like for me, most of my bills come due between the first and the 15th. So between the 15th and the 30th, my money looks very different and has very different jobs than it does at the beginning of the month. So if I don't separate those two as separate budgets, I'm going to get tripped up all over the place. If you're getting paid weekly, then make a weekly budget. I mean, however often you're getting paid, that's what you want to plan for is the time between that paycheck and the next one until you get out of that paycheck to paycheck cycle. And the other thing that you want to make sure that you plan for is the emergencies. Car repairs are going to come up. So I have an auto maintenance fund. Medical, even if they're not emergencies, something medical is going to come up. So I have a medical expense fund. And that really helps take down the stress of when those things come up, we can just easily pay them. And the other thing this does is when you have a budget, you can actually budget in some fun money for yourself. And I think this is very important because like we talked about before, crash budgeting doesn't work. Why? Because you're depriving yourself. I hear so many people talk about making budgets like a 50, 30, 20 budget. This percentage of your money should go for this and this percentage of your money should go for that. Well, that's not reality. I mean, if your rent is 25% of your paycheck, unless you're planning on moving, it is what it is. So the percentages really don't matter to me. The reality of the situation matters more to me. But you need to make sure that you have some fun money in there. I give myself a weekly allowance. And the reason is because not only does that make it easier to stay on track with everything else, but then when you have extra money, and I say extra money with quotes around it, but let's say that you have a bill that was $150, but you budgeted $180 for it. You've got $30 extra that you might be tempted to go, oh, okay, now I have some play money. But you could actually put that towards a goal that's more important for you, whether it be vacation or your new car or just your next bill to get out of the paycheck to paycheck cycle. So if you already have your spending money set aside, your allowance, you're less tempted to take that, quote, extra money and just blow it. And the last one in here is called the preemptive budget. And it says, sometimes people will become panicked or motivated by a period of overspending and think, wow, I need to cut back. I better make a budget. The problem with this approach is that no one can create an informed budget without analyzing several months of spending first. 
Now, I agree with this, but a lot of people will say, okay, you're ready to start a budget. Er, stop. Don't do it until you track your expenses for six months or three months or whatever it may be. Well, I totally disagree with that because if you're in the mindset right now that you want to start that budget, this tracking thing for three to six months, by the end of that, you might be done. You might say, forget it. I don't want to do this anymore. Those expenses are already there. Instead of tracking the next three to six months of expenses, just go back to what you've already spent. This is very easy to do now, given the fact that most of us pay for things on our debit or credit card, which means you have statements and they're probably online. So all you have to do is go on there and get some statements from the last six months to a year, whatever. Go through and a lot of them are categorized for you already. So you can see your expenses and see kind of an average of what you're spending. That's really all you need to do. You don't need to spend three to six months tracking everything in a book before you ever get to your budget in the first place. And the other thing I really loved in this article was the statement that your budget should be a live organic entity that helps you assess where your money is going without judgment or restriction. Budgets don't need to be restrictive and they don't need to be a time when you sit in judgment on yourself. It's about seeing the reality of your money, seeing what you have to work with and deciding what you want to put it towards, not what somebody else wants you to put it towards, but what you want to put it towards. The things that you spend your money on and save for are completely up to you and they're a personal choice. What somebody else is doing has no bearing on what your plan should be because everybody has different priorities in life. Everybody has different things that they like. I spend 85 bucks a year on a budgeting program because I love it. It makes my life easier and I actually enjoy using it. A lot of other people would say, I would never spend money for a budgeting app. I can do it on paper and I'm not going to spend my money that way. That's totally fine. It's just a completely personal choice. And that's what your budget needs to be full of is personal choices that make sure that you're spending your money the way that you really want to and that you're just thinking about it so that you can get what you really want out of life instead of just watching your money flow through your fingers and wondering where it went. So, In the end, my whole thing, once again, is that I love Michelle Kagan's statement, a goal is a dream with a plan. And I believe that budgeting is really nothing more than goal setting. It has changed my life and it has gotten me excited. And I hope that it gets exciting for you too. Now, if that excites you, think about becoming a millionaire. Okay, class, Sensible University is now in session. Today's guest professor is Tony Bradshaw, author of The Millionaire Choice, Millionaire or Not, You Can Choose. After 16 years working in the financial education space, Tony felt there were many people still not receiving the help they needed to get their finances on track. So in 2017, he decided to write his book, which contains the 10 life and financial principles that helped him become the first millionaire in his family's history. Tony, thank you so much for being our guest professor today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Tell us why you wrote the book. Yeah, so I've been in the personal finance space for quite a long time. And then, you know, obviously dealing with my own personal finances, even before I got into financial education space. And this book actually started out as a children's book because I, I really wanted to look at the industry. And there's just so many people doing so much good work out in, in this space, you know, trying to help people with their money. But there's still a lot of people that are not getting the help they need. You know, when you look at the statistics, 75% of people uh, live paycheck to paycheck. We're just really not making the headway we need to make in the personal financial education space. And so the book actually started out with the concept of becoming the millionaire seed as a children's book. The idea there was to plant the seed of hope of becoming a millionaire in, in a child's heart at age five, six, or seven. And as I got working on it a little bit more and you know, think through the process, I really decided I wanted to write an adult book first. So it's based on my story. I come from a low-income family. I grew up in East Nashville, which was not a really well-respected neighborhood. We had you know drug dealers across the street. And uh, I don't tell a lot of people this, but actually, uh, when we were cleaning house one day, found a bullet hole in our front window of our house. Yeah, so not not the best environment. But I really, as a kid, I, you know, you grow up and you just don't realize these kind of things are going on around you. You just kind of keep moving forward. And um, we didn't have the best clothing or any of the best things that some people get used to. And so I went forward with my life. My parents did the best they could, and uh, they sacrificed a lot for us. Uh, my parents both came from meager means. 
and uh, they wanted the best for us. You know, they poured out and a lot of parents do that. They want the best they can. And, and I'd say my mom probably overcompensated a little bit, trying to give us way more than she was able to grow up with. But at 25, I got out of college. And uh, fortunately, I got out without any student loan debt or anything like that. But I did find myself with my first W-2 out of college. And I had made $39,000. And I could not believe how much money I had made. I'm just like, wow, where did all that money go? Because you know, prior to that, I think I might have made $5,000 in one year as a college student. And I just couldn't believe there was that much money that I had made it. And I looked around. I was living with my parents in a studio bedroom apartment paying, you know, I think at that time, maybe about 200 bucks a month in rent they were charging me. And I looked around and I'm like, I've got a television. I've got a stereo, some really nice speakers, a desk my dad made me, a bed that I made, and a computer that I financed, and a car in the parking lot that I financed. And so about $16,000 in debt total. And I just, it just hit me. It's like, wow, that was really bad. And I could never let that happen again. So I went to the bookstore and started learning everything I could about money. And about 90 days after, you know, learning uh, Books A Million magazine, Smart Money magazine, Kiplinger's magazine, Fun magazine, learning how to invest because no one ever taught me how to invest. I wasn't going to learn from anybody that was in my relatives or in my circles. And so I took all that information and being a numbers guy, I went to school for engineering. I realized money's really just a math problem. I'm pretty good at math. And if you do the right things with your money, I can become a millionaire. That's why I decided to call the book The Millionaire Choice, because it was at that time in my life at age 25 that I decided not to follow in my family's bad financial footsteps. But I decided to make a millionaire choice and to become a millionaire. So inspirational because there's so many of us that focus on the little money that we're making. And and like you said, I mean, the question about, you know, where has my money gone just hits so many of us. It's like, what is happening here? So until you do something with that money and really figure out and direct it, it just kind of keeps flowing through your fingers. Yeah, absolutely. It's like having a bucket with a hole in the bottom of it. Everything just keeps going right through the bottom. I love that analogy in your book. So once you discovered that you had made this money but had nothing to show for it, you had your aha moment. But how did you go about changing that and redirecting your money? I said, you know what? If I want to be a millionaire, here's the formula. I've got to invest in mutual funds. I've got to invest in stocks. Those were the two things I understood at the time. Real estate was not in my repertoire at that time. I didn't really have any other options. What I learned about was investments in stocks. And so I realized I've got to put this much money into these investments at this rate of return to hit this number. I also realized on the counter side of that, the debt was my enemy. You know, And since that age at 25, I've just looked at debt as being the enemy of building wealth. You know, That $16,000 in debt had to get away. I had to get out of that as fast as possible. And so about 18 months after I realized that, I had gotten out of debt and had about $18,000 in stocks and mutual funds. That was my big thing. So I took a lot of people tell you just pay your debt out first before you start investing. I actually had enough liquid cash or, you know, disposable income to do both at the same time. So I aggressively went after my debt, but also aggressively went after my investing as well. And um, paid, I was just thinking about this the other day because I had a five year car note, but I paid it off in three years, you know, obviously after I had figured out that this was a problem and I just, I didn't want it. I didn't want any more debt. And, you know, that was the last car I've ever bought financed. So every car since then, I was 28 years old. So over 20 years have all been purchased with cash. Wow. Kudos to you. That's an amazing accomplishment. Now, for those of us who may not have the disposable income to be able to invest and pay down debt at the same time, does it make more? more sense to pay off the debt before investing. Yeah, I think it's, I hate these wide rules that kind of like paint with a big paintbrush over everybody because everybody's situation is going to be a little bit different. And a lot of times it's going to make sense to get your debt out of the way first. But at the same time, if you look at somebody's income and it's a very low amount of income and you take a long time to pay off your debt, well, then you're missing a lot of growth opportunity for your investments too. And so I, I don't want to paint with a big paintbrush. I would prefer to sit down and, and look over a person's financial situation and decide what's the best course of action for them. Because there's it, it usually not just a one size fits all, in my opinion. You do need to look at it as a case by case basis. And you know sometimes you're going to have to go encourage people over the next three to five years they got to go find more income. You know, that's just the only way out is to increase your income. Others have a, enough income to make it work. 
and then give them a, you know, a good plan. A lot of times from working in the industry, what we've seen is if people get real serious about getting out of their consumer debt, they can get out of most of their consumer debt, if not all of their consumer debt in about two years. That's everything but the house. And so they just have to get real aggressive. And you know that might not include a car. You might want to sell a car. You, if you've got a new car or something, that would be the way to unload that debt. But in most cases, two years is a good time frame for somebody to get out of debt if they really get hot and focused on it. So it sounds like it really starts with a financial foundation, right? Which you talk about a lot in the book. So let's talk about what a financial foundation is and why without it, even if you get rich, you won't necessarily stay rich. Yeah. So a lot of people fall into money and you read in the news, your NFL players or your professional athletes are probably the best example of this of people that come into a lot of money, you know, million dollar contracts per year. But no one ever taught them how to manage their money or do anything with their money. And so statistically, a large percentage of those people are broke within three years after leaving their jobs or getting out. So, you know, you have these guys that make a million dollars a year or more. And then three years after getting out of the industry, they're broke. And some of them make a lot more than that, like, you know, 10, 15 million dollars a year. And the reason is because they didn't have a good financial foundation. And a financial foundation I would characterize in a couple of ways. I would say your character is a big piece of that because I don't believe you can build and keep wealth unless you have strong character. Tell us why that is, because that really fascinated me in the book when you talked about that. You'll see a lot of different people that make money and then they lose their money. But the five character dimensions that I specifically are most concerned about, and there's a lot of dimensions of character. You can talk to different people, but one of them is integrity. If you look at any leadership studies or anything like that, almost all leaders are going to identify integrity in the top you know, one, two, or three areas that are responsible for their success. And so it's very important to have integrity. And so I tie that back into your money as well. So if you want to be a successful person, you want to be successful with money, you need to have integrity. The next one would be responsibility. You need to have a high sense of responsibility, uh, not just for the things that you do, but for yourself. And then you get into things like work ethic, self-discipline, and focus. So are you focused on the right things? A lot of times, if you're not focused on the right things, a la money, what are you doing with your money? Then you're spreading it all over the place. And before you know it, you're back to the bucket principle again, where you've got a hole in the bucket and everything's leaking out the bottom. So really focusing, in this case, you'd be focusing your life, but you would say you'd be focusing your money on the right type of investments or things to build your wealth. That's where I would start with the character. And then on top of that, you get into things like you have to do a budget. If you're not budgeting your money, you're spending it all. Quite often, you'll hear stories in the tabloids of these megastars that go on these spending sprees and they're dropping you know, half a million dollars in a single day of shopping. And while they may be able to afford it now, that kind of lifestyle is going to catch up to them sometime in the future. And so you see the aftermath of it later. But, you know, really keeping a budget, at least some kind of a budget to where, you know, it's not all leaking out the bottom. That really goes to the point that it's not really about how much money you have, but rather what you do with it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. When I decided I want to be a millionaire, I was only making (laughs) $39,000. And, you know, looking back, I mean, I I didn't even understand. Like I was making five grand more than my mom was. And I thought I was doing pretty well because she was, you know, 20 years older than me. And here I was this 25 year old kid and I'm already making five grand more a year than my mom. So I felt pretty confident in what I was doing. I had no idea, you know, because of the family I grew up in, I didn't know what a six figure income was. Yeah. Now, in that vein, tell us what, because in the book, you talk a lot about the difference between being rich and being wealthy. I believe majority of people, not everyone, but a majority of people have a view of money and wealth is either A, I'm never going to have it, or B, those rich people are really bad. And so they don't want to be rich because the rich people are bad. And so I think both of those are lies. And so I, I tend to think there are a couple of different camps. So I separate rich from wealthy because I believe, you know, there are some bad people with money that have a lot of money and they, they hoard it. They don't do anything good with it. And if you look at giving statistics, I looked at this and I've written an article on it. It's really pathetic. You know, when you look at the giving statistics for people who are high net worth individuals, like people over $25 million in net worth, and you look at the amount of giving that actually takes place, it's, it's very embarrassing. And so I would say that a lot of people in that space, I would characterize them more as rich because they have a lot of money, but they're really not doing a lot with it to help people in need. And so that's why I believe wealthy people are more altruistic. So I say, you know, wealth, when you say wealth, I like the way the word sounds because it sounds like healthy. So if you're doing the right things with your money and you're wealthy, then you're going to be healthy as well. And so you're going to be sharing that money. You're going to find things to do with it. I don't mean sharing in a way of just like giving it away for the sake of giving it away, but finding a purpose for it. You know, I believe wealth has a purpose and I believe that purpose is to enjoy life and to help others in need. 
And so it's up to us to really find those ways to help people in need when they show up. Your book focuses on the 10 keys of the millionaire, and we've talked about a couple of those. But one of them that I thought was important is key number three, and that is get money smart. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So just like I did when I started at 25, there was no one there to teach me about money. I didn't learn about it in school. I didn't learn about it in college. You know, it's so sad because, well, I did take an economics class in college, but it taught me nothing about personal finance. It was more about macroeconomics and, you know, business and world economics. So I'm going there going, Hey, I had a pretty good education. Supposed to be a pretty smart guy. I can do calculus. I went through Cal one, two, and three, but I didn't know what to do with this thing called money. And so I had to learn about it. The resources today are a lot better than they were 20 years ago, of course, but you have to take the time to go learn about it. And so just like we learn about math, English, and science, and in many cases, you're learning about those three subjects for 12 years while you're in primary school, secondary school. And if you go into college, you know, you learn about some of them for another four years. You got to think about money the same way where you need to start learning about it and you need to continue that education on money. You're not going to master it with a year of studying it. You're going to have to continue that growth and you're going to have to continue absorbing material. And uh, every time you study it, you're going to learn something new. And, and when you're ready at the certain stages of life, you're going to be able to apply that to yourself. Like I said, early on, I was only doing stocks and mutual funds. Well, now that I'm a bit older, I'm a little bit smarter. I've gotten into real estate. And then after that, I got into a little bit of cryptocurrency. And then after that, I've you know decided to get out of the regular IRAs and do my own self-directed IRA because I can nice. get better returns doing some different investments than what I would have done when I had less knowledge. And so that goes right to uh, your key number four, which is finding a money mentor. And we've talked about why this is important, but for people who don't have a lot of money, because one of the things, I mean, you talk about several different ways in the book, a financial advisor, something like that, that you might have to pay a lot for, or a lot of times financial advisors won't touch you if you have less than $250,000 of investable assets. But what can people who don't have a lot of money, how can they go about finding a money mentor? Mentor. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I've got a friend that I just met. I do have a chapter in my book about finding a money mentor, but I only have a chapter, right? And so there's a book that I just came across by a gentleman named Nicholas Stuhler. He wrote a book called The Truth Shall Set Your Wallet Free. And so Nicholas has been in the financial advisory world for probably 20 to 30 years. And he's seen both the good and bad of the financial advisors and how they work. And he's actually developing a tool right now. And it's in a more of a beta phase where he connects people based on their profile to financial advisors that can best serve their needs and help them. But I would tell you, there are some people as I've you know gotten more into the space on my own versus you know working for somebody else. And there's some really good people. And, and what they do, a few of the people I've met is they go, I've already got the rich people. Now I want to help the poor people. And so they look at their business in a different way. And what they do is they carve out, you know, 10, 15, 20% of their time to serve people who normally wouldn't get served because they're like, I've already got the contracts. I've already got the income. Their motivation is not just to make more money. Their motivation is to, you know, get fulfillment through helping out people. You need to have somebody uh, in your corner that's a little bit smarter with money than you and point you in the right direction or at least give you feedback. Yeah, that's so important. And you always hear, and I used to feel this way before I started educating myself more about personal finance. We always tend to think, I don't have enough money to need a financial advisor. I don't have enough money to need those kind of services. When in fact, we need it more than people who have a lot of money, right? Yeah, I believe so. And the reason is, and even I needed one, the reason I'm so big on it as I was writing my book is because I'm more of a do-it-yourself kind of guy. So most of my journey has been figuring things out on my own and just kind of applying what I learned. And I'll tell this story. Uh, a friend of mine, she had not had anybody look at her finances or anything like that before. And I asked her, I'm like, hey, would you like me to look over, you know, your 401k? And she goes, yeah, please do. And I looked at it. And what I found was that she was putting her money in, getting her match. And that was all great. But at the end of the year, there was something happening with the account, which was sweeping out all the investments and sticking into a money market fund. And so she was going from what should have been, you know, eight, nine, 10% growth to like one to 2% growth. So looking at hers, <laughs> I decided, you know what? I haven't looked at mine in a while, set it up, but maybe I ought to check it. 
And when I looked at it, what I found is I had done the basic diversification, you know, pick four funds, international, you know, global, all that stuff. And um, two of the funds had outperformed the others like two to one in growth, which was about $35,000 per fund. It doesn't sound like that much money, but when you compound that out, just at that point, if they had matched the growth together, been at the same rate, you know, it was like a half million dollar mistake. That's in my opinion, when I would get to retirement. So in that case, I'm like, you know what, not having an investment advisor in my corner that I actually like went to and dealt with cost me at least half a million dollars, probably more if you look around stuff. Now, it didn't hurt me overall because I'm in pretty good shape, but still half million dollar mistake is pretty disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing was, you know, you got a 401k manager and they're supposed to be looking at that stuff, but the reality is they don't. You know, they take your money, you stick it in there, they get paid, they get a percentage. You know, it's kind of like the switch goes off and it goes on autopilot. So somebody's got to look over that stuff for you. You need to have somebody in your corner that cares about it. Sure. And And nobody, let me say one more thing. Nobody cares about your money more than you. And it seems to me that there's so many financial mistakes that get made just because people aren't paying attention. And now the world we live in is so automated. It concerns me a lot because if you're not paying attention, even if you're on autopilot, there's things that fall through the cracks all the time. Yep, absolutely. And I've even seen this online where software has got to be the worst, right? You turn on some service online and you use it for two months and you forget about it and you wake up 18 months later and the thing's been billing you for 18 months. You haven't even used it. And it's like, all right, that was pretty stupid. But it's the automation that goes on. It's supposed to make your life easier. But then again, you just spent a bunch of money on something you didn't even really need. Now, this paragraph really got to me. uh, And it says the reason people don't accumulate money is because they don't set financial goals. You you hear about goal setting so much, but a lot of times it, it people don't really get down to what goal setting really is and why it's important. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess the best example is, you know, when I was 25 and I'm like, I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 40. I had a very specific goal, you know, I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 40. And I was motivated by the fact that I was making 39 grand a year. And I figured if I could get to a million and get my 10% growth, then I'd be spending off a hundred grand a year. Now it was a little bit naive for a 25 year old, but that's the best information I had to go on at the time and, and nobody there to help guide me or correct me. But I'm going, you know what? That was my goal and my plan. So I figured if I could double my income with a hundred thousand dollar income, I'd be living in hog heaven. That was as far as my vision could carry me at that time in my life. That was my goal. Now on the way to that goal and hitting that goal, a million dollars didn't look like a lot of money anymore. It's kind of like, ah, you know, I got to the million. So what's next? And so you're, you know, you get more information, you, you grow a little bit and uh, you set different goals. But that was my first goal, financial goal. Now, what kind of fit within that one was I need to get out of debt. as fast as possible. So it broke it down into these micro goals, right? And so the other two goals would have been how much money am I going to put away each month into this investment fund and how much am I going to put on debt? And so I focused mostly on debt at at least the first two years. And then after that, it became, you know, more investments. So those are fantastic goals. And it's great to have those pinpointed in your mind and, and especially a date when you want to get there. But then at that point, it's just a dream, right? Because until you put a plan in place, that goal really isn't going to go anywhere because you don't really know how to get there, right? Which I assume is why you write so much about creating your millionaire plan in the book. Yes. Yeah. You got to be able to pull everything together. And like you said, if you're a project manager, you do project stuff, everything has a date and deliverables and, and specific goal dates. So, you know, you, when you step on the football field, if you're a football player, you know where the end line is and you have a game plan and, you know, it may not go exactly like you planned because you're going to have to make adjustments. Like when I set my plan in motion, I kind of forgot to include the wife with $20,000 of debt. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> that didn't make it into my first plan, uh, but it came pretty quickly after I Uh, made the plan. So I had to adjust for that. I didn't plan on six kids and all of the hospital bills and especially the diapers. Right. (laughs) You know, that stuff adds up. And so that caused me to adjust the plan even more. But once you have the plan, you know, you can at least adjust it, but it has to have like hard deliverable dates with actual goals inside of it that allow you to make it real. Because if you don't write it down, if it doesn't have steps, if it doesn't have the pieces that you need, then it's just a dream and it's probably never going to get attained. And that's what I thought was so great about your book, because if I was listening to it, I would think, okay, that sounds good, but I'm so overwhelmed now. How do I put this all in place? What do I do? And you have those steps broken down in the book in different ways to accomplish those micro goals. 
Yeah, yeah. And that's what I try to do. I mean, the reality is a lot of the financial books out there, I was trying to think, you know, there's so much good material out there. What did I have that was actually going to be useful and different than what's on the market already? And for me, it was really, you know, what did I do? And then how can I simplify it? And my wife will probably shoot me for saying this. But, you know, talking to my wife, she's not a numbers person. She has trouble calculating tips at the restaurants. You know, she doesn't like percentages. She's intimidated by numbers. She actually scared of them a little bit. And it kind of hit me because she had been to a couple financial classes and it and it just didn't stick with her. And so what I really try to do is like get the numbers out of there because all of the financial books that are out there are written by financial guys. And so they tend to have a lot of jargon in them or they're so close to the material that they don't realize how the average American operates and how they think. And so I really, using my wife as a guinea pig, I guess, you know, try to recraft some of that and she got it. And I think the biggest thing for me made me feel really good is she read it and uh, <laughs> she goes, I get it. Wow. She's like, I, I get it. And she had been through other stuff and, and she just didn't get it. And then she went through mine. And she's like, I get it. The other thing I'll tell myself a little bit here, because we've been married 20 years now and she didn't even realize I was wanting to become a millionaire. She, we were just like living life, you know, having yeah. kids and trying to make it. And I said, Hey, we're millionaires. And she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then when she read my book, she was like, this is what you were thinking about the entire time. And wow. I'm like, yep, it sure was. So I didn't do the best job of communicating my vision to my wife, but somehow we still made it. Yeah, I think that's so important because so many people get overwhelmed with numbers and data and and all of this stuff. But there's so many other reasons and they compare themselves to other people. You know, if you start talking about numbers, oh, I didn't pay off my $100,000 in debt in a year and a half like the other person did, so I should quit. But whatever it is, it's always personal to that person, which is the reason why budgets and plans need to be customized, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you just set a great example. If somebody's got $100,000 in debt and their income is not going to let them pay it off quickly, I'm probably going to give them a different approach and strategy and plan, depending on their age, of course, than I would for somebody who has like $20,000 in debt because a $20,000 in debt is a bit more manageable. And so you just got to look at each case, you know, as it presents itself and adjust, you know, adjust the game plan. So you were 25 when you decided to become a millionaire. Do you believe that somebody, let's say at 45, still has, and maybe his low income, still has the opportunity to become a millionaire? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And here's why. I thought I was pretty special because I became a millionaire by age 40 until I met the guy that did it by the time he was age 30. And he grew up in Compton and wow. LA Compton. And he was the only white dude in his community. And the deck was stacked against him. I thought, you know, he grew up in a rougher community than I did, but he still made it. And then I met another young man who made his first million. He didn't drop out of high school. He completed high school, didn't go to college, but he made his first million by the time he was 22. Wow. Now he blew it all. He blew it all. <laughs> right. Why did he blow it all? Because he didn't have a financial foundation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was later able to get it back. But he's like, man, I, you know, I had great mentoring and I had somebody to tell me this, but he didn't tell me about financial management. Wow. And so the money just went right out. He came in and went right out the bottom. Yeah. So, yeah, I absolutely do believe that. I don't want to limit people. You know, I always kind of say Colonel Sanders didn't get started till he was 67. Wow. And look what he did. He did a pretty good job. Thank you for those stories, because that's one of the hardest things for me to overcome was that feeling of hopelessness and the poor mindset that said, I'm poor and I'll always be that way. And there's no hope to do anything else. So, you know, I might as well just live with what I've got and deal with with it. And it doesn't have to be that way. No, absolutely not. So tell us about the millionaire manifesto that you talk about. Yeah. So I worked in the personal finance industry for 15 years before that, you know, it was about six years is when I, from the time I had my, what I call my financial awakening. And then I'm looking at what's going on in the world today. And, you know, 75, 78% of people live in paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, my mom and dad, my sister, my friends, none of them followed me on this journey to become a millionaire you know, sadly to say they knew what I was doing. They knew where I'm at, but for some reason, they just haven't grabbed a hold of the vision for themselves. Like it's almost like something they don't feel like they can attain, even though I attained it. And so that, that really bothers me. While I was in Salt Lake City working for a company, I worked with an African-American couple and they showed me something I'd never seen before. And it really rocked me to my core. It was the wealth disparity between white Americans and African-Americans, Hispanic Americans and Asian-Americans. And for the first time ever, I had seen that the wealth disparity is about a 13x wealth disparity. So white Americans have about 13 times more wealth than African or Hispanic Americans. Asians are kind of in between those two numbers. 
And for the first time, it hit me because I'm like, I worked at a personal finance company at the highest levels. I was on vision. I was on strategy. I was on like all the stuff, all the stuff that we were doing. I knew all about everything. And I'm going, you never once did we really talk about helping people in poverty. And I'm like, why is that? And then it hit me for the first time. All the companies out there doing this financial education training are doing what they're supposed to do. They're developing great products and they're building great products for the market and making a profit but you can't make a profit off of broke people. And so the people who need the information the most are the ones who are getting the least amount of focus, the least amount of help, and the least amount of energy put into them to help them. And that really bothered me. So as I thought through that and I wrote my book, I'm like, you know, I really want to create a company that's innovative and has a different vision and does things very differently than everybody else is doing them. And I'm just getting started. So I've got a long way to go. So the proof will be in the pudding, you know, check back with me in five years. But uh, that's really where the heart of the Millionaire's Manifesto comes from. I'll read it off to you. I've got it here in front of me. We create wealth. We fight poverty. We strive for a world of financially educated people where wealth is overflowing. We envision a world where poverty is a distant memory. We see in America where Social Security, Medicare, and one day even bank loans are obsolete. Yes, it's an audacious goal. Some might even say impossible. We dare to dream the impossible dream. I believe that if people have a vision for their future and they know how to manage their finances properly and they have some aspirations behind it, that you won't have this issue called poverty that we we just keep trying to throw money at or whatever. I believe yes. it'll fix. I believe it'll resolve and fix itself. I have this dream of going, what would it look like if an entire city was full of millionaires? The whole game changes, like everything changes. Now, 100%, I'll back off a little bit because some people may say that's ridiculous. But before I get to 100%, I got to get to 20%. And so I've got to start where I'm at. And I'm hoping to bring a lot of people along with me who will start that journey and uh, catch that vision. So that's what the Millionaire Manifesto is all about. That is fantastic. I uh, Kudos to you for doing that. And I, I wish you all of the best because, yeah, I really so much feel the same way that you hear so much about poverty and, and throwing money at it and trying to change it and everything. And my heart breaks, uh, you know, especially now that I, I know a little bit more about how money works and how to make my life better. And I want to share that with so many people. And it's not about having the money thrown at you. It's about dealing with that money in, in the proper way. And so I'm just so excited to hear that that's your journey and that's where you're at is wanting to bring everybody out of that in a way that helps them educate themselves to be able to make it for themselves. Yeah. So uh, as I was writing the book, I really wanted to add a section in there about families and children. And it just got a little too long. The publisher didn't want me to put that out there. So I actually have an ebook on the website that I've written. It's probably been about up for about 60 days now, but it's called Creating Millionaire Families changing your financial mindset. Nice. And so the way I look at it is my book is a how-to book. It's got the directions. It's got what you do. It's got, you know, a lot of help and materials to kind of get your money on track. Creating Millionaire Families is more of a what-if book. And it's really about trying to get people to shake loose from where they're at today and dream about something bigger and dream about what their family's legacy could look like and a few ideas on how to get there. Right. So it's all about time. You know, it takes less money over a longer period of time to actually create millionaires. And so when you start doing the math on this kind of stuff, it really starts to get shocking when you go, you know what, if I put $3,000 in a fund for my child at age zero, the year they're born, they're a millionaire. It only takes $3,000. That's amazing. If I do the same thing and I go, well, what if it's by age 18 or age 21? Well, you know, that number looks like $10,000 and you go, okay, they become millionaires. That's all it takes to get you there. Now, you know, people are going to say, hey, uh, you got like inflation and all this stuff. I don't care about that because on the journey, it's going to wake people up and they're going to change. Their character is going to change. Their emotions, their mindsets are going to change. But it's about getting started somewhere and uh, getting started quickly. And you were talking about how your wife got it. And I just wanted to tell you, that's what inspires me because at the moment that I got it, I thought, this is so simple. You're right. It is just math. And man, I just want to see everybody get it. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we wrap up? Yeah, I've got something I would like to share. I think a lot of people are scared about budgets and people are afraid of them. My wife was afraid of the budget. And so I really want to help people understand that budgets don't have to be scary. 
and they don't have to be rigid and they can be really simple. And so what I try to do is really break the budget down into four categories. And it's the categories that I think matter most. If you want to become a millionaire, if you want to build some wealth for yourself and your family, and that's this, you need to know how much money you need to live on. So at any time in your life, if something happens, you lose your job or just on your day-to-day living, you need to know how much money you're spending just to put food on the table, pay the bills, keep the electricity on, the water going. It's never any fun when the water gets cut off. You know, I've been there. It's not fun. So you need to know those numbers. And then after those numbers, the next most important numbers are your wealth money. And so this is the category that people forget and they don't mess with. And they go, okay, well, I don't care about retirement because it's too far away. If you're young, it's too far away. And if you're old, you're scared to death of it. You don't want to look at it. So don't even think about it as retirement money. Think about it as wealth money. And you're building wealth for yourself. And wealth is really like, when do you want to live life the way that you want to? And so when you want to live life the way you want to, you need to have wealth money. You need to be having money flow into there. And so you want that wealth money category on your, you know, your spending plan to be as high as possible. And so a lot of people neglect it. But when you start thinking in a different way, you go, okay, I need to keep my living money as low as possible, but I need to make my wealth money as high as possible. You know, you start looking at life a little bit differently especially when it comes to your finances. So I had a friend recently that read my book. I'd grown up with him. We've been going to schools together since we were in second grade. So from second grade through 12th grade, and we stayed close friends. And he read my book and he loved it, thankfully. Just a little (laughs) endorsement there. And he goes, uh, I just got my raise, Tony. And instead of spending it, I put it all into investments. Nice. When you look at that and go, okay, if he does that this year and he does that next year and he does it the year after that and the year after that, he's going to be putting a lot of money into his wealth money bucket. And he will become a millionaire. That was just pretty exciting for me that one of my friends actually jumped on board and got it. And what's fun is he had been through some other financial materials and things and he just, it didn't connect with him the same way. So the other two buckets, I only break the budget and the spend. I call it the spending plan because I hate budget because it scares people. So I just use the word spending plan. Two other categories, which are play money and other money. And your play money, you got to have some fun in life. You're going to wither up and die. And so that could be, you know, going out to eat, taking your wife out to a movie, whatever. You got to make sure you keep your girl uh, smiling all the time. And then your other money is anything else that fits. So I like throw birthday presents and stuff in the other money bucket because if worse comes to worse, I don't have to spend that money on anything. Uh, Title boxing. We're doing some title boxing now to stay in shape. And that's in our other money bucket. But you can you can pull the plug on that stuff and it doesn't really matter. When push comes to shove, you don't have to spend that money. And that allows you to look at your spending plan a different way. It goes, hey, is anything out of balance here? Because those are my four categories. If you're spending $3,000 a month on your play money and you got zero in your wealth money, you, you might be out of balance. Right. So that's just a quick, easy way that doesn't, you don't have to like measure every dime to kind of stay on track, but you can kind of keep a loose connection to your budget and actually still make a lot of progress. I love that. Yeah, because there's so many people who look at budgeting as penny pinching. And so to tell somebody that, hey, you know, you need some play money in there. Otherwise, yeah, like you said, you're just, I mean, it's like a diet, you know, if you go on a crash diet, you're just going to go off of it and you might go gangbusters the other way and gain 10 pounds after you tried to lose two. So what's the point, you know, and it's the same with budgeting. If you try to take every penny away and never spend a dime on yourself, it's not going to work. So yeah, yeah. And on top of that, usually we're all built differently, right? So usually if you've got one person in the family, uh, husband and wife, you've got one that's a spender and one that's a saver. The saver is going to penny pinch everything and the spender is going to die. Right. (laughs) Whereas if the spender gets full control, then, you know, there's no future. So you might have a lot of fun at the party right now, but the future is going to be pretty bad. And so you need to kind of look at both of those. And that's why I think, uh, you know, just really simply breaking it into four categories allows both parties to kind of get their needs met. And it gives you balance. And balance is certainly, I think, one of the most important things in life for a great life. Tony, I really want to thank you so much for all of your time today. So much great information. The book, The Millionaire Choice, Millionaire or Not, You Can Choose. And I think that's the most important thing, that the choice is always in your hands. Thank you for having me on, Bobby. I've really enjoyed it. Our guest professor today has been Tony Bradshaw, author of The Millionaire Choice, Millionaire or Not, You Can Choose. You can learn more about Tony at themillionairechoice.com. I'll definitely be following Tony's journey, and I can't wait to see him continue to change lives in such positive ways. He was telling me that he's got a financial literacy curriculum being beta tested in a grade school right now, and it sounds like it's already having a fantastic impact. 
The book is a great read. So if you're sick of living paycheck to paycheck, dreaming of becoming a millionaire, and are really ready to do what it takes, I highly recommend picking up a copy of his book. Of course, it's available at Amazon.com, or you can go to his website at TheMillionaireChoice.com. Thanks so much for joining us on Sensible Chat. Until next time, keep spending and saving the sensible way. That wraps up another episode of Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby. If you need help with your budget or want to share your thoughts, reach out to her through the contact page at SensibleChat.com. While you're there, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Oh, 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 oh